Well, hello, and welcome back to From the Center, the podcast for the Center for Western Studies. I'm John Hodges, the director here, and I'm with my friend and colleague, Ben. And Ben and I are going to be continuing a conversation we're having about civilization and culture. Ben, we got up to the point last week of um, talking about how it is we can compare um, axioms to one another and how we might, uh, since axioms are are foundational and pre, in a sense, pre-rational uh, uh, givens, how do we evaluate them? And we came up with a good number of things that we could use, I think, to begin that conversation. But it led me to think about a term that uh, you find in Aristotle uh, called eudaimonia, or eudaimonia, as some people say, um, a word that means um, happiness. Now, that word kind of needs some definition because Aristotle didn't mean by that uh, what we usually think of when we think of happiness, that is uh, momentary pleasure, uh, you know, that kind of thing, a state of happiness, a state of feeling good uh, in your life. But happiness is um, is a concept that is the fulfillment of human activity, human life, um, maybe the, the flourishing is a better word, flourishing of human life. What does it mean for a human being to flourish, to do well, to, to be all he can be, uh, that kind of thing? Um, and I think that uh, Thomas Jefferson, when he wrote in the um, Declaration of Independence that there were three inalienable, unalienable rights uh, given by our Creator, life, liberty, and what he called the pursuit of happiness, uh, he was thinking in Aristotelian terms. Um, what is it that he meant by that? He certainly didn't mean every individual just runs and, and uh, does whatever he wants to do and uh, you know, is on his own to, to accomplish um, whatever he likes. But, but what does it mean to be a human being uh, in, the, in a state of flourishing? How do we become uh, all that we might be? So it, it seemed to me it tied into our discussion because um, if we could define a little bit about what it means for human beings to flourish based on our observation of human life, maybe that would help us in our pursuit of uh, axioms, uh, finding uh, tr- uh, principles that by which we might live that somehow fit uh, with the nature of the world around us and now with this idea of flourishing, the nature of human beings. Yeah. So, um, where do we? Where can we start? Are, for example, um, are we talking about human beings flourishing individually or as a group? That's a good good question. Good, well, good place to start. They, and just just backtracking a a, a couple of um, uh, steps. Yeah, uh, we had talked about other civilizational ideas. Say about uh, the relationship between the, the gods and uh, and men. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that human flourishing is possible and a good thing and, and, and maybe even a, a, an end in itself um, is certainly present in, for the Greeks right. in a way that it's not at all present, say, in Gilgamesh. Right. So right. even the idea that human flourishing would be something desirable, mm-hmm. or that there could be such a thing as human flourishing, is is really absent there. So I think this this idea of tackling eudaimonia is certainly not a tangent from what we were 
discussing, but it's a central way for us to get at whether the axioms of a civilization are harmonious with human life mm-hmm. or if they're something else, if they don't resonate with human life as we experience it. Yeah. Are, are we saying that the Mesopotamian approach um, just assumed that human flourishing wasn't a possibility or wasn't important? Or it it assumed say? that the purpose of humans was to serve the gods serve by the keeping gods. their temples and sacrificing mm-hmm. to them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's, that's it. But it certainly didn't um, bring any idea of goodness or even moral piety mm-hmm. or, or flourishing or benefit to the humans who did that. Mm-hmm. There, was, mm-hmm. there was no idea that by doing that they were fulfilling something of themselves mm-hmm. that would give, the, give any sense of fulfillment. It almost implies a, a question about design. What are we made for, right? Like, uh, what, what is our telos? What's our goal? And what, are we, what is our being our that's, made for? Th- that, that's exactly right, because where, where this is coming from with Aristotle, it has to do with essences. Yes. So it, it's, it's not just, here's a thing that exists, and so what is good? But it is goodness for that thing consists of its fulfillment of its essence. That's right. That's right. So the goodness for a doorpost is different to the goodness of a rubber bowl, mm-hmm. is different mm-hmm. to the goodness of a pen, mm-hmm. is that for each thing there is an identity and its highest goodness consists in fulfilling that, fulfilling that, that to that, the highest degree. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So if we can think of... Um, the human being in the same way that we think of a pen, say, uh, or a knife or something, in the sense that he has uh, certain characteristics that, that uh, if when fulfilled are going to make him fulfilled. <coughs> when, the, when the knife cuts properly, when it's sharp enough to cut properly, then it's doing its job, as it were. But it seems to me it implies something like nature's or the nature of a person, nature of a thing, you know. And I've always thought that, that, that wisdom really is the discovery of the, and appreciation of, uh, of natures. You know, to, to learn, we used to say, you know, the old <laughs> yeah, tomato joke. Yeah, analogy, that's yeah. right. <laughs> we used to say that uh, knowledge is different than wisdom. Knowledge is, uh, is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, and wisdom is knowing that a tomato doesn't belong in a fruit salad. Yes. But it's, it's, it's that idea of, of, of knowing the nature of a tomato. That what is it about the tomato? What does it taste like? What does it feel like? How, when is it ripe? When is it properly edible, uh, you know, best edible? So you've given us an easy question. We're just to define the nature of man. Is that <laughs> right. Okay? That's about it. Okay. Yeah. Well, and, and maybe, because it requires that, really, to kind of decide what flourishing looks like, right? If we are, if we are built to cut steak, you know, like a knife... Uh, then uh, maybe we fail most of the time because I'm kind of I'm kind of dull that way, yes. <laughs> in more ways than one. Uh, but uh, but if we have something that we're designed to do, if there's something that we are supposed to do, and we could figure that out, then it seems to me it would be also helpful to to focus our understanding of what these axioms are. And yes, which ones? I think, that, I think that's that right. Makes sense. So but, I also think yeah, yeah. that that's 
immediately massively controversial um, sure. to, to, to start talking about what are the highest goals for, for mankind. Yeah. And yeah. I wonder if a way we could approach that is by looking at the things that are different cultures uh, and different thinkers consider to be threats to human fulfillment mm-hmm. or considered to be things that are degrading humans to as human opposed beings. to elevating them. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And maybe we would find some common threads there that if we were just looking for the positive attribute wouldn't be so obvious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because that would... That would imply the, the positive, wouldn't it? It would. If we can see a hold, get a hold of some of the things that everybody assumes is a negative, then we maybe imply yeah. that. Well, that's a good idea. Well, where would we go to find something like that? Well, what would the Greeks... Uh, we're talking about an idea that's coming to us from the Greeks, or, or is at least uh, yeah. clarified in Aristotle. Yeah. So what is the thing that... Uh, Aristotle or Plato, what are they afraid of? What's the worst thing that could happen to a person or a group of people? Well, speaking of a person or a group of people, part of our definition would be to say which of those is the more important. Uh, do we do we hold that the individual is the highest uh, good? Uh, or do we see the individual as more f- uh, flourishing more as an individual or as, as in a group, in community? Um, it's not an easy question right off. I mean, we are very individualistic in our day-to-day, aren't we? We think of the individual and his preferences <laughs> as sort of the highest good, highest authority. Certainly. And so the uh, death is the ultimate evil because it's the denial of anything to the individual. Right, um, right. Can't but make any choices for you, yourself you, after you, you die. Can't make any choices after that. Right. So, um, I think the, for the Greeks, death is actually a better alternative than exile. For example, or, don't or, you find that in Socrates? It's not always clear. Socrates chooses death over exile. Socrates chooses death over exile. In in the medieval Renaissance, I think we see that idea come again in European city-states where the idea of being exiled from your city is, you know, obviously expressed in Shakespeare as as an example, is at least comparable to death. Mm -hmm. It's not always clear Mm -hmm. which one is better and which one is worse, Mm -hmm. but the idea of being excommunicated from your people, Mm -hmm. of being made an individual where you ought to have been Part of a group. Part of a group. Right. That is degrading. So there must be something about being separated from your people that is degrading to you, even though we today think that uh, the individual by himself, almost as an autonomous figure, um, is the highest highest good. Uh, don't you think we think that way today? Th- I'm thinking about, uh, you know, Carl Truman's book and uh, understanding about... The modern self. Modern yeah. self. The modern self as a, as a purely as an isolated individual and, and even so the, the, the idea that you can separate yourself even from your physical body, you know, this whole transgenderism well, idea. Well, I, I do and I don't. I, I, think on, I think on one side of the coin, it often looks like individualism is absolutely the, the, the sunum bonum. It, it, it's, it's my way from me. 
But I think the flip side of that coin is um, that there is within those exercises of individual will a need for them to be recognized by the community, to be validated by the community. That's actually where that is is driven. Yeah, that's a very good point. It's not enough. I think it's especially not enough today for a person to say, I will make my own way and decide for myself what is right. It needs to be, you will agree that I have uh, the right to say what is right. Yeah, right. And you won't transgress that. And in fact, and you will ally with me in that. Yeah, and there that's, is, a, that's a good point. There's a strong communal drive there. I, I, well, it has to do with identity, doesn't it? We, we, in addition to the fact that I want the world to agree with me about who I am and, and so on, I need to I need to identify myself as something larger with something larger than myself. So we have all these tribes now, you know, racial tribes that disagree with each other, maybe, or economic <laughs> tribes that disagree with each other, or uh, maybe women against men, or you know. Uh, anyway, you find you find that you have to have a group around you that agrees with you, and if you don't, then part of your identity can be lost. I think so. That's a very dangerous thing to it. So that, even though we are claiming to be individuals. <laughs> back when in the seventies, back after the the sixties revolution, people used to say, "I'm I'm an individual, just like everybody else." Just like you know? everybody else, that we're unique I'm rev- like I'm, all the others, just like all the others. I'm a revolutionary, just like all my revolutionary buddies. So maybe we do need the two of them. We need a, a certain amount of willful. Uh, decision making on our part, but we want to decide in such a way that we f- find our identity with others uh, too. So a community is a part of it. I think so. Flourishing I don't think must have gone away. And it seems like they understood that. Uh, uh, certainly, Socrates understood that. He made the dramatic decision not to uh, not to be exiled. He had that option. Yeah. Um, Dante. The, the sort of tragic thing at the, toward the end of his life was that he was exiled. You know, and that's when mm-hmm. he wrote the Divine Comedy. Okay. Um, they even, I think, I think uh, Leonardo was basically exiled from from uh, from Italy, mm-hmm. and the, the, uh, Francis the First invited him to France, and that's how the, I think, the Northern Renaissance kind of follows with him. You okay. know? but uh, but being exiled is not a uh, not a good thing. <laughs> People it's, don't like to be exiled. A, from it's not their, a good thing, yeah. and I think maybe the reason why we don't have the same fear of exile today that. Uh, Socrates would have had isn't because we um, I, I think it's because it's a lot harder to be exiled today because there are a lot more places we could go and still be within the same civilization. That's a very good point. I think if we were faced with truly being exiled from our culture and our civilization and never being able to be connected with them again yeah. but living yeah. among people who don't share our values at all then we would fear exile the way the ancients perhaps did. Mm-hmm. So it's not that we, uh, it's not that we're not afraid of exile. It's that it's much more difficult to be exiled today. It's sort of parallel to excommunication in the medieval period. You, when you had one church in the West and you were exiled from that, <laughs> excommunicated. That, that, that meant was hell. Yep. <laughs> that meant you were outside the the body. Uh, now, if you get kicked out of one church, you just go to the other one, right? So a lot of times that's... 
So uh, it's hard to get outside of the civilization now because it's so vast. That's great. So, so we've already found one thing here is being cast out is the degradation of human. Yes. So being identified within a body greater than ourselves is human flourishing. Yes. That's one of the aspects yeah. of it. Excellent. Okay. Well, and you, oh, that makes a lot of sense because then uh, you can see why it is that so many people have worked for so long to establish what uh, a, a police looks like, a, a, a society or a city uh, would look like, starting with the Republic way back, but yep. all sorts of things since then. Um, Rousseau spent a lot of time trying to decide what it is that uh, the, the place of the of the polis would be in the and the government and the influences of the government and so on um, disagreed maybe very vastly with some others at the same time like Burke but um, we we need uh, to set the parameters of the of the city of the of the society let's say the the political city in the vast sense of the word I'm not talking yeah. about Republicans and Democrats here I'm talking about the ordering of We're interaction about communal of human, human life right communal mm -hmm. human life and I, what what about this what about that what about the okay. the uh, the flourishing that comes about by a healthy polis I think, again, the Greeks are a great place to go for this. So <laughs> for, um, for Plato, he's just come through the tyranny of the Thirty. Uh, at the end of the Peloponnesian War, uh, Sparta institutes a, uh, a, a tyrannical uh, kind of oligarch over Athens. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the, so there's a very keen... Awareness, and then there's a rebellion against that, and Athens once again becomes their version of, of a democracy, not mm -hmm. necessarily what we would right. think of. Right. Um, tyranny is absolutely the enemy for for the, for the Greeks for for the fifth and fourth century Greeks. Yeah. What what they are afraid of, what um, exemplifies um, everything miserable in the human condition. Both for the tyrant and for the, yes, for the government. That's one of Plato's big points, isn't it? That the tyrant himself is not flourishing. He's got He's, them all the power. If he could, can accumulate all power. But because he has all power, he is afraid all the time because he's contributing to the fear of other people. And right. through their fear, they're a threat to him. Sure. And so talk about community. He's actually isolated, isn't he, from all community. That's exactly right. Uh, so he can't actually relate to anyone, not trust anyone, in, in other words. So, yeah. So, so this idea that uh, all you've got to do is acquire lots of power and then you'll be happy is really uh, the opposite. That's and not how the Greeks saw it. We've known it since the Greeks. <laughs> yeah. we've, we've heard that since yeah. the Greeks, the argument anyway. It's not just to say that people haven't tried it over and over again. <laughs> uh, but that's, uh, you know, maybe, maybe if Hitler and Stalin had read, uh, had read uh, Plato, we would, but they, uh, they didn't. So anyway, so, okay, so the, but the interesting thing to me is that the, the polis and the system that we come up with for a government doesn't actually make everybody happy. 
right? It the mere existence of the polis doesn't make everybody happy. Right. No, it's, it's not the means by which. Well, it's the means by which this the sort of atmosphere is possible for somebody to to exercise it, happiness. It, it could for, be, to, but there are more there are more conditions on the structure of that polis. Uh -huh. So there are some things which oughtn't to be. So there oughtn't to be um, all political power, for example, concentrated in the hands of a, of a single person or a single institution. For, for, for Plato and Aristotle, right. this, this would be the thing, is that there is some forms of limits, is that there are laws which are applicable to all um, right. that there is uh, a, a structured basis for the citizen mm -hmm. who's a participant in the polis mm -hmm. to, to know what's expected of them mm -hmm. so that life in, in community isn't arbitrary. Right. Taking away right. arbitrariness and taking away fear are key parts of this because to live constantly under fear in an arbitrary existence where anything might change at any time you might become the enemy at any time this is what Hobbes uh, I think calling back to the, uh -huh. the, the classics here in Leviathan Hobbes identifies as the the state of nature which is so unbearable we we are looking for a social contract to get out of right right so right right otherwise it does become human in that exactly for, for, for Hobbes as, as I think for the for the classical um, fathers uh, human life that um, is under an arbitrary fear isn't properly human life. It's right. something less than. Can't, you can't flourish under fear. So there's a freedom then that we're looking for. Uh, freedom from fear anyway. Um, yep. That's a word that maybe needs some definition, freedom. We... Uh, we think of freedom as the ability to do whatever we like whenever we want, right? <laughs> that would be the absence of fear, right? Mm, Maybe. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. But, but I don't, here again, I don't think we use the word the same way that it was used in the past, freedom. Freedom, it seems to me, is the ability to do the good. And anything that limits you from being able to do the good, we haven't defined the good yet, but mm. whatever the good is, Anything that limits us from being able to do the good would be tyrannical, would be against freedom. But, but it's, not, it's not the same thing as, um, as uh, autonomy, right? Autonomy would be uh, self-law. Gnome, gnome is law, so autonome would be self-law. Mm -hmm. And uh, to a law unto myself, in other words. Uh, that would be, we think, that, think that's the synonym for freedom, but in reality, I think the synonym for freedom would be um, well, the definition for freedom would be uh, uh, the ability to do the good when you have the opportunity, you know. If anything that stops you from being able to do the good would be a, an enslaving thing. So, if you're a slave to your appetites, for example, mm -hmm. right, it may not be, make it possible for you to thrive uh, physically. If you if I only eat candy bars every day, then I'm not going to be very healthy. Yeah. Uh, so I wouldn't thrive. But I could be free to do that. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm free to do that. But to choose that then wouldn't be wise. I'm, and it limits my ability to do the good. So your ability to make those choices depends on a clear structure 
of consequences. If you're aware of what the consequences are for an act, mm -hmm. then you get to choose whether to do it or not. Mm -hmm. If you're not aware of what the consequences might be of a certain way of living, then you're in some kind of arbitrary um, state. Right. This small s. Right. Uh, you, you, right. You're in an arbitrary condition. That makes so living within a structured community where laws, for example, are, are, are the main way we think of that structure mm -hmm. existing. But of course, for the Greeks, um, uh, customs was uh, probably more powerful of, of how they thought of those, uh, those norms of human behavior. Those things create a clear expectation for what will happen day, day to day, what good communal life consists of. And living within those bounds, as you say, isn't complete freedom in a philosophical sense that we're not you know, free to do anything, but by living within bounds of normal behavior, we actually get to be in society with other people who are doing the same. We know what to expect broadly, day in, day out. Well, that's a kind of life that can be free in other ways, mm -hmm. whereas um, living outside of any of those bounds, you say, puts you outside of the polis, puts you outside of the community, well, then you aren't really free anymore because what you're not free to do is be a part of the group. Of the community, that's true. Yeah, I think that's right. And I also think that it has to do with the fulfilling the nature of the human being, too, like my candy bar analogy. That is, mm -hmm. if you are free to eat something that's not good for you, let's say cardboard or something, um, you are, you're free to do that, but it actually limits your flourishing rather than allows for it. So that's a freedom that is that takes you outside of the flourishing that you're aiming for. So maybe maybe what we're talking about is you, you brought up laws, maybe laws in their best sense, I'm not saying all laws are good. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that laws, when, they're, when they're, they're good, they are kind of a reflection of the wisdom of past centuries where people have tried things and said, uh, you know, don't eat the cardboard, um, that kind of thing. You know, yeah. um, we're going to make, make a rule that you can't eat cardboard. Or better still, we're going to, as you said, the, the community is going to make a kind of... Um, uh, communal decision, uh, social decision, you know. Not, you're not going to go to jail for eating cardboard. But this is not what we eat. But this is, right, this is how yeah. we live. This is how we live in flourishing. Um, and so we refine, in a sense, what we do to be more and more able to flourish, to, to flourish more and yeah. more. The, this this exact thing is um, discussed by Benjamin Constant. So he's um, there's an essay on uh, the liberty of the ancients and the liberty of the moderns, and he's contrasting uh, what freedom means in Athens, what freedom means in Sparta, and then he's he's using that talking about kind of in the legacy of the French Revolution, talking about constitutional democracy, republic mm -hmm. uh, issues. But he's also got a novel. Uh, called Adolphe, which says the same things, but with a story. And it's the story uh -huh. of, a, a, of a gentleman who's in society with all of the constrictions of, of 18th century, 19th century um, 
uh, nobility, mm-hmm. and he, he he wants to transgress, and so he he has an affair, and he runs off and has a mistress, and he's he's overjoyed because he's free to do whatever he likes, uh-huh. and he's not going to be bound by the restrictions of morality in society. Mm-hmm. What happens? Well, his his mistress has child. He's shunned from society. He has to support this. He doesn't have the same ability. He, he, he doesn't have the same connections that he used to have. Of course, what he finds just a little way down the road is by exercising unmitigated freedom, he's lost his freedom. There's a great example. That's just exactly what I'm saying. So, freedom is the ability to do the good, and and uh, flourishing then would be accomplishing the good, okay. right? Being able to do being able to do it, you re- it requires freedom to be able to do it, but then to do it would be to be all that you can be. Now uh, we haven't defined the good; it's true. Mm-hmm. But what we're really aiming for here is an idea that would help us in our search for uh, support for axioms, support for Uh, foundational principles. So if your foundational principles lead you to a better life, couldn't we couldn't we compare the life of the the Greek man to the to the uh, uh, Assyrian man in Gilgamesh or something? Couldn't we compare the the life of the? And I'm not talking technologically here. I'm not saying you know we they didn't have uh, you know uh, indoor plumbing or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just saying were they able to accomplish? Were they able to? F- Flourish? Were they able to bear fruit in ways that others hadn't? And I would argue, yes, the Greeks were able to bear fruit in many ways, philosophically in particularly. Mm-hmm. Right? Particular. Um, I don't know how many. Uh, I mean, you could tell us maybe uh, how many um, famous um, um, Mesopotamian philosophers there are, uh, but but we there, certainly there are some. Some very interesting uh, didactic plays. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, there's a there's the wheat arguing with the sheep as to which one is most uh, most important for, uh-huh. for human for human uh, flourishing. Yeah. I think wheat wins because of beer. So there are, yeah, there's 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 certainly culture. I see. Sure. For sure, it's difficult for us with the proviso that we maybe live in the Greek tradition. Sure. You know, sure. To see life outside of a polis, outside of order, mm-hmm. as being really uh, uh, conducive to human flourishing. Mm. Um, but I think the simple fact that the Greeks strongly identify that their societies where they can flourish and identify that, for example, Persian society isn't a place that um, they could flourish in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Greeks don't, don't like the idea of proskinesis bound before the, the, the king the, right. the, the, because they have this crazy idea that men are not that different from each other whether you're a king or not. Yeah. 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 The f- not so the fact that the Greeks hold up their own culture as the, the means for flourishing and consider, say, the Persian culture as not a place where people flourish, as a place where just the king is all-powerful but decadent, mm-hmm. um, that 
in itself doesn't tell us that the Greeks are right and the Persians are wrong, but the fact that the Persians don't have a culture which is trying to identify what human flourishing means uh-huh, does. Uh-huh, uh-huh. The Greeks are concerned with identifying what it takes for a man to be fully man. Yeah. The Persians are not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There isn't the same um, uh, participation in culture that there is in, in the Greek world, which is not to say that the Greeks are getting it right, but I think they're asking the right questions. They're asking the right questions, exactly. That's huge, huge. I think so. I don't think the Egyptians, for example, I don't think are asking those questions. The Assyrians certainly are, are, are not asking the question, what does it mean for a population to be fulfilled? Right, right, it's, right. It's the king has come here and I've, I, you know, by Ahura Mazda, I conquered them and I cut down these people and I took the, there, yeah. there is no sense of um, what is good for the people. The, the Hindu caste system uh, is similar, right? Where you have, uh, in a sense, you don't care what happens to the person that's at the lowest caste. Okay. You know? uh, I remember a story a friend of mine who's from India uh, told about how he had visited America many times, but his wife had not, and, and uh, he brought her over one time, and they were driving along, and, and uh, you know, the ambulance passing them, and everybody dutifully pulled off to the side of the road to let the ambulance go by, and as he was pulling back onto the road again, he looked over, and his wife was weeping. Okay. And he said, what, what is it, dear? What is, what's the matter? And she said, it never occurred to me that it's possible to live in a place where all of the well people, all the healthy people, would get out of the way so that one sick person could get where he needed to go. Mm. Because she said, in, in Calcutta or wherever, we walk down the street and there are people dying on the streets all the time and we just step over them and keep going, you know. The, the 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 sense that life uh, is important and ought to be preserved is uh, very different in uh, in the castes in uh, uh, in India. Now I take it that there are certainly modern, more modern, or more sort of Western influenced places in India now where hospitals you know exist and people care about ambulances and so on. But that was an interesting story because she had never been in a place like that. She'd never been outside India. And, that was a, yeah. a strange, you know, new idea. Um, so flourishing is um, is, a, is a, a preservation of life to begin with, right? A, to rec- a recognition that my life matters, but because my life matters, your life matters too. So it's a so there's a uh, an axiom that life is more important than death. That is, it'd be better to live than to die. But the the unique aspect of the Christian picture would be to say. I, um, you know, the second part of the, the great commandment is love, your, love the Lord and, and love your neighbor as yourself. And suddenly you have not to care just about your own life, but to apply, love your neighbor's life as much or more as you love your own life. Um, and that's, that's radically different. But, but it's an extension of, it's an axiom that could be uh, clearly seen by p- comparing it to what uh, others have done like that. It, it, it's an axiom that others have thought. that allows the polis to keep going without becoming a tyranny. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. Um, I, I would describe it as the dignity of the weak. Uh-huh. Um, yes. And I, I think you're absolutely right to identify that it's something 
weird in Western society that wasn't really there before and isn't today outside of Western society. Yes, yes, so yes. The, the idea that the weak should have dignity, mm -hmm. that a human being should have some kind of worth because they're human, not because they're strong. Yes. And that if we are strong, there's a duty that we have to protect the weak. That's right. That's we, right. We That's can unique tell, to the West. We can tell how core this is by looking at what it's like when this is attacked. And we're going to go, hey, I'll go right to Godwin's Law and talk about National Socialism in Germany mm -hmm. and how fascism attacks the idea that the strong have a duty to the weak and upends that and says, no, 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 the strong have a duty to be strong. Mm. And, and they prey on the weak and whatever they can do, they will. Mm -hmm. It's taking Thucydides' observation that the strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must and turning that into a moral good. Right. As opposed right. to just, right. this happens, is no, 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 this is, this is the sumum bonum, that the strong will lord it over the weak and that the weak actually should be removed it would be better off if they were gone if, if they can't serve us in some way it would be okay. better if they were gone right right well we know that that is an antithetical idea to western civilization right so that tells right. us that the dignity of the weak must be an essential part of what it means for humans together to flourish. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a good point. I'm thinking about Tom Holland and how he says some of the same things in his book Dominion. That even um, even the the left wing of our political world today is so steeped in that Western notion, that Christian notion, that the weak have dignity, that they they gear everything just about that, that they do around it. Still, even though they've yes. dismissed. The God that's told them to do it, right? They dismissed the Bible and Jesus and religion that way, Christian religion that way, but they still think that the underprivileged and the minority and the poor and so on need to be elevated. Need ought to be, to be. Ought to be. It's not just yep. should be. No, yes, it's it should be. It's a. It's a. It's an imperative. Yeah. So there's a moral foundation there that they've. Well, I would argue that they've given up the God that told them to do it, but they still seem to have it. That's how deeply set do, this yep. is in our, in our culture. Um, and and Tom's, Holland's point is that uh, you don't get that from any place other than Christianity. You can't find it in the Greeks. You can't find it in the Romans. You certainly don't find it in the Africans and you the don't Japanese find it in the East. and the Chinese. Yep. and the Right. It, it's not there. It's not there, the Mesopotamians. So uh, where did it come from? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, that's another uh, aspect that we need to consider as a foundational notion. Do we want? Do we think that man flourishes better if the weak and the, un the underprivileged and so on are cared for by those who have privilege? Then, and yes, I think. I think yes, in the West we do. That it's, we do. Wh whether that's right or not, it's certainly one of our axioms of human. We flourishing. hold it. We hold it as a position that we walk from. We, we, we think from. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Many of the economic decisions uh, and the political decisions that people make today are based on that idea. Uh, for better or worse, thinking that maybe the government ought to be the one to take care of the poor for example. Mm -hmm. And so we get into debates about whether that's the job of the government or the job of the individual or job of the church or whatever mm -hmm. like that. But 
Um, uh, but we don't deny that it should be done. Exactly. That's the yep. difference. That's the Absolutely. difference. Nobody is saying, no, leave them to rot. You know. Well, are there other uh, examples of the, de the detriment uh, in our mytho mythologies and our philosophers uh, that we can point to that imply uh, good, the, the good? To yeah, other the good? ways that, that humans are degraded. Well, I think yeah. you, I mean, you, so you already identified, I think, a Marxist strand, for example. Right. right. Um, I think for me, there's a really interesting strand in Nietzsche. Um, so Nietzsche, we might think of as a massive critic of, of Western civilization and of Western values and, and of even the idea of, of morality at all. But I find that it's, it's very interesting in, in genealogy of, of morality that on the one hand, he's saying that whatever is, is okay because there isn't any real such right. thing as ought. Right. So there's no basis for morally critiquing the situation as it is. Right. And, and he talks about the, the bird of prey and how it's, it's right to take the lamb and eat it. And that's not a wrong thing. Uh, and also he's not saying that right in that case is a moral right, but it's just, it, it's what happens. Yeah, yeah. What he really doesn't like is the oh, I know what you're going to say. Is the artificial morality that has come about, whereby the meek have persuaded everybody that exercise of strength without limit is evil. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is part of his critique against this, Christianity. This is his. This is the core of his critique against Christianity, against the part of it that he, he would see as, as, as Judeo, is that those who aren't strong, those who don't have sufficient will to power, those who um, are the cultural uh, nadir, those who aren't, aren't mighty or wealthy or virile, mm -hmm. <laughs> have successfully persuaded the world through cultural means and other means that unfettered exercise of power is evil mm -hmm. and actually it's restraint that's good and so they've constructed a morality that then itself exerts power and the power that uh, it exerts right. puts those people the weak in a position in, of power in a position of power sure now sure. It makes perfect sense and he, he's and he's saying uh, that he hates that because it's false. It's lying, isn't it? It's how dare it's, they? Yeah, who are they? Who, how dare so, they so, are lying to us about the reality of power in order to have power. If Nietzsche's, if his analysis said that unfettered, the unfettered exercise of power is fine, and restraint uh, isn't good. And hey, by the way, did you notice that we seem to have this idea of morality? You know, these people have have, have persuaded everyone that uh, that that restraint is good, yeah, and now yeah. they're in power. Yes. You know, why would he have a complaint? Isn't that interesting? But if he's got a problem with that, and he's vehemently got yeah, a problem really with it, 
what he's saying is that there's something about that that's wrong. Yes. There's something about that he, that, that he despises. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't, shouldn't do that. <laughs> and that flies in the face of his it, old beyond good and evil it, argument. It, yeah, it does. Yeah. And I, the more I've kind of dug into that, I don't think it's that the weak have usurped the strong. I don't think that's what he can't stand. I think it's that the weak have lied yes, about what is good. Of it. They've deceived the yeah. strong, and, and, and because his Uberman, that one of the key things about his Uberman is his Uberman doesn't need to lie to people. He just gets to do what he wants. He doesn't have to pretend that he's doing right, good. Right, he just does right. what he what he wants. Yeah. And so there's this. I think it's implicit. It's certainly not explicit in, in Nietzsche. But there's this idea that humans ought to be honest. Yes, yes, yes. That that flourishing human life ought not to consist of deceiving other people, mm-hmm. but ought to be in line with base base um, reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for Nietzsche, the strong do what they can, and the weak suffer what they must. So so human life, if it's to be appropriate ought to be in line with base reality whatever that is right and we ought not to lie about what base reality mm-hmm. is no apologies for exercising power no apologies right. that's exactly it yeah i see it i think you're exactly right so it's the deception part of it that he hates not so much that that one group is in power over another cuz he really can't argue with that uh yeah i think that makes a lot of sense you know in reading marx um I find that some of the same things apply. That is, that that there's a an assumption that he makes that that the uh, the middle class is oppressing the lower class, and that that is wrong. Now, mind you, just make this proviso: Nietzsche, I think, is a proto-postmodernist, and so he's not really making the same error, although it's similar. Uh, that Marx is making. Marx, Marx is saying you should throw out your values, but you should accept my values. Well, right? e- you, even that statement already, you should throw out your right, values. Right, right. It implies... You should throw out value. Right, right, right. We've already got a value inherent in that statement. Exactly right. So, so true. Um, but what I think is interesting about Marx, and I just realized in the last few times that I've looked at him, is that he is interested in flourishing. Very much so. He really does think that's the thing for human beings. The way to flourish, though, is for you to be able to be free to exercise your gifts, your powers, your capital, whatever it is that you have, talents, um, to fulfill your will. And anyone who is in the proletariat is almost by definition working and using his gifts and talents and so on to fulfill the will of someone else. Yes, that's what human alienation is. That's right. Is giving our good, or our toil that could be for our good, yes. giving it to another. For yeah. his benefit, really. Exactly. Right, and that seems to be a, a departure from the, uh, the flourishing. Yes. We're not flourishing. Yes. And for Marx, that happens because the means of production are concentrated in the hands of the few. That's right. And, and capitalism runs on surplus labor. Surplus is the thing that I have that I'm giving no. to, the, to the final product. And so the thing ought to be organized in such a way that my surplus remains mine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
That's right. So what I yeah what I'm after is that flourishing is still a part of his thinking, even though he's rejecting uh, much of what we would consider uh, Western tradition it, it, it up to that point. Is. Anyway, I think I think Marx would flourishing is Marx really would fundamentally agree that life in the community is preferable to life on the outside. Yeah, that the community ought to be ordered. Now he, the way it's ordered, and and the reasons why it's ordered would be different for Marx, I think, than a constitutionalist. He would absolutely agree that the dignity of the weak needs to be protected by right. the group. Right. So, in a sense, Marxism is a an extension of Christian thinking. It's a, sort of a Christian... Um, I've heard it described as a Christian heresy. Heresy. I, mean, I was about to say that word. I was thinking that's the right word. Yeah. Um, heresy, I think, is a good idea. Um, and, and because of that, I think this is another, maybe a topic for another uh, time. But because of that, I think the parallels between Marxist socialism and the call of Jesus to care for the poor uh, are uh, tough to discern, discern sometimes, and people misunderstand. I agree. Misapply mis, yeah. uh, Jesus' yeah. teachings to Marx and vice versa. We definitely need to bookmark and have a, have a later mm-hmm. uh, episode where we dig into, into Marx. That would be mm-hmm. fascinating. That would be a lot of fun. We have a, we have a podcast that uh, Jack Val and I did, uh, two of them actually. We did a two part thing on Marxism where we talked about Marxism per se, and then we talked about sort of neo-Marxism in the 20th century uh, and the, uh, the Frankfurt School folks yes. and, and uh, uh, how, the how that influenced... French in the, the 60s. And the- yeah, exactly. The, the Fr- French and America in the 60s and England in the 60s uh, picked up on so much of that and ran with it. And uh, Anyway, that's, that, those are interesting. If people are interested yeah. in that subject, you can go back and... And pick up on that. It was in the context of a uh, critical theory, yes, in general, uh, and how it was applied to so many other things like science and race and law and so on. But I think we probably ought to wrap up now and see if we can't carry on next time uh, with a new subject. But if you're interested in discussing this further, I hope you'll drop us a note, uh, write to us at uh, director at centerws.com, and we'll be glad to read your emails, your questions, your comments, and we will bring them up if proper. We will. We've we've been overwhelmed with the response to the show. It's been, (laughs) so we have so many questions to get through, but but we're going to have to save those for another week. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. That's a good idea. Well, we do, we do have people, I want to say again, uh, that for those of you who have said to me, when are you going to start up your podcasts again? I I'm, I'm delighted to say we are doing that, and, and uh, you have ins- inspired us to, uh, to, to take it up and run with it again. Thank you, Ben. Enjoyed chatting you, with you, all, as always. Great time. We hope you all have a great week.